All right, everybody. Hey, how's it going? So good to see you. Hey, do me a favor. Stay on your feet for me. Stay on your feet for our scripture reading. Right on. Always takes a minute to calm down the 9 a.m. crowd. Hey, uh, welcome you guys. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm super excited for today because we are launching a new teaching series. And to help us get started with our new teaching series is my good friend, Lola. Can we put it together for Lola? Lola is going to be reading our scripture today uh, from Romans chapter 12. So let's turn our attention to the screen as Lola reads for us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies in living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is the true and proper worship. Do not confirm to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given, to, given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ we, though many form one body, and each member belong to all the others, we have different gifts according to, the, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is, encourage, if it is, in, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do not do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking zeal, but your spiritual um, fervor, fervor um, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, um, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Pr um, practice hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Come on, Lola. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So as I mentioned a moment ago, we are today launching our four-week mini-series called Life Together. It's a mini-series on community, and just like a lot of my good ideas, I stole that idea, Life Together, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the greatest books of the last hundred years on community. And by the way, I took a couple weeks off from teaching to prepare for this series and what we're doing for Advent in a month, and I had some good friends teaching here for me. We had Michael and Brooke who taught for me, which I'm very grateful for, other than the fact that you both ruthlessly ripped me apart while you were up here, which is becoming like a new thing. I guess that's one of our values here, is that we make fun of Andrew at every turn. That's okay. I can handle it. But anyways, thank you guys. Love you guys. And uh, now we're launching in. Okay, so... Um, how do we set up this series on community? Well, I think we need to talk about the climate, the cultural climate that we're living in. We lived through what will go down in history as the most significant global health crisis of the last hundred years. The COVID era, I don't have to tell you, affected every part of our lives. Some of us lost jobs, our businesses, uh, economic stability, 
We lost our rhythms, like going to school and the grocery store, church gatherings, things like that. In fact, kindergarten teachers will tell you that COVID babies, on average, are developmentally impaired, particularly in their social skills. And that's not to mention the tragic loss of life. Some of us lost friends and loved ones. So COVID is what the history books will remember. But researchers are beginning to sound the alarm that COVID has brought into focus an even bigger health crisis, which affects us more than the virus ever did and has more implications for our quality of life, including our life expectancy. Loneliness is the new pandemic. And to be clear, this has been an open secret since well before 2020. Shelter in place for 18 months didn't help that. And now loneliness is a global problem that cannot be ignored. Our former Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murphy, writes this, During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. And all of the data would argue that Americans are literally the loneliest people on the planet. Think about that. The person appointed by the president to improve our nation's health as a society who was briefed daily on the best scientific and medical research available today has come to the the conclusion that the quality of our relationships are integral to our overall health. And since leaving government, Dr. Vivek Murphy did not write a, a book on the opioid crisis or something like that. He wrote a book called Together which is a secular health book that's about love and devotion as the antidote to loneliness. And it's probably worth your time to read. It's really good. The research and the diagnosis is really fascinating. But you can also probably skip it because he doesn't offer anything that hasn't been ripped off from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, (laughs) which I don't fault him for. I think he's on the right track. I just wish more people would give... Uh, acknowledge their source and give Jesus the credit for the ethic of loving our neighbor. And Jesus isn't, to be clear, isn't just offering us a wellness hack. He's teaching us a whole new way of being human. And the results are, or the byproduct is, that we have wholeness and thriving in our relationships. So again, to truly understand the biblical teaching on community, I think we have to understand the cultural milieu, the climate that we are in that is shaping our existing imagination around our relationships. And I promise in just a few moments, this will all make a lot of sense. I think there are at least four environmental factors that contribute to the loneliness pandemic in Western culture. Number one is hyper-individualism. And a lot has been said by us and others on this over the years, so let me just summarize it quickly. Going back to the 19th century, the American dream was considered to be a radical social experiment, even by European standards. So the post-Enlightenment European philosophers of the era predicted that the promise of full autonomy and the pursuit of happiness would actually deteriorate the social fabric. And I think we could argue that that's happening today. And it's become so ubiquitous in pop culture today that most Americans aren't even able to realize that the belief that the meaning of life is to pursue my dreams or to follow my heart is actually a very new way of seeing ourselves in the world. And not only is it in conflict with the teachings of Jesus, it's also led to low-grade narcissism being an acceptable and even celebrated disposition towards the world. I just call it what it is. I think it's the cult of self. It's how we worship ourselves in our culture. And history has proven that hyper-individualism has a, a major blind spot. When the meaning of life is to simply pursue my dreams, we unknowingly sacrifice our sense of belonging and our sense of responsibility to the community. So in the vision of the Bible that we read a moment ago, it's almost the exact opposite. 
in humility and devotion, offer your whole self as a sacrifice to Jesus and his kingdom community. So already, just on the outset, we understand that following the teachings of Jesus is an act of faith that goes upstream to our culture. The second environmental factor of the modern West is consumerism. And in this kind of society, we emphasize acquiring and consuming products and services as a means to achieve our personal well-being. For example, a common ad that I often hear today um, on my TV opens like this. This is a direct quote. Nothing is more powerful than you making your thing happen than sell product. I don't know what the product actually is because that's when I stop listening and I start preaching to my family. <laughs> Which is like, that's just a rival gospel rising from secular humanism. And my wife's looking at me like, did you think I wrote that ad? Like, talk to the marketing firm, man. Like, your beef is with them. So uh, some things have just gotten a lot better and a lot easier with consumerism. There's no doubt. For example, you can decide what kind of toothpaste you want one time. And then you can prime it to your doorstep every six weeks. Like, it doesn't, it's hard to argue with that. It's, it doesn't get better than that. But then, of course, there's backside to that. There's obviously problems like disposable culture and environmental impacts and a deformed heart that believes the answer to what you're actually longing for or feeling inside is to get more things. But the real problem with consumerism is when we turn it on our relationships, when we make all of our relationships relationships of utility, this person is in my life for a function, to make me feel better about myself or to get me closer to achieving my dreams or some close equivalent to that. And most relationships have an element of utility to them, and, and that's okay. For example, in a marriage, in a family, relationships are both, and they have utility and they're meant to be agape as well. So when someone in my house needs nurturing, you go to Grace. My wife is like there for that. If there's like a weird noise at night, you know, that's my department. And, we're like still trying to find the other stuff that I'm good for. One day we'll find that too. But uh, On relationships of utility, here's what Tim Keller writes. Sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. And today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. And when we cease to make a profit, that is when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. This is a phenomenon I've come to call soft quitting on our friendships. And the results are that we just have weak ties to each other that are based on unspoken social economics. And I think at the, at the end of the day, it's extremely dehumanizing. And it makes people feel insecure and unwanted. And I'm convinced that this is why many people feel pressure to keep up appearances when they're actually not doing well and they're going through hard times because we've been conditioned socially to not be too needy because people may not accept the burden of our friendship. The third environmental factor is the digital revolution. And much has been said about this over the years. You're probably sick of hearing me talk about this, but uh, we have to go here because this is a big part of the milieu we're in. Ronald Ruhlheiser put it like this. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Neil Postman wrote a book in the 1980s called Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he argues that in the age of show business and Hollywood, we lose the ability to think creatively and more importantly, think critically in favor of escaping into a fantasy world of entertainment. And he wrote that 30 years prior to the world of apps and social media and the entire internet in our pockets. 
And at this point, I'm sure you can, you're pretty, pretty, pretty tired of hearing us talk about the attention economy. But I want you to remember that just you know, in the early 2000s, Facebook, the first social uh, network, was founded as an experiment to increase connection with the people around us. And that's what they still say their state of mission is today. But instead, it's become a media engine where your attention is what's for sale, and it's where we go to, dis to distract, escape, and pursue superficial forms of connection. So I've come to find that the internet is not somewhere we go to cure loneliness, it's where we go to numb loneliness. The fourth factor is the COVID effect. And by that I mean the lost social connection during 18 months of social distancing, absolutely. But I also mean the phenomenon where polarization and tribalism has accelerated drastically. Where all of a sudden friendships that we thought were really secure and safe are being completely disrupted over vaccines and political affiliations and things like this. And if you have lost friends during COVID or the post-COVID era, because of stuff like that. I'm, let me be the first to say, I'm sorry to hear that that's happened to you. It's happened to me too, despite my best effort not to. It's sad. It feels like we used to be able to disagree more and stay in relationship, but now it just feels safer to stay as neutral as possible, not share our true selves over fear of not being welcome in the tribe that I thought I was a part of. Now these factors are both external and internal. And when they all come together, they form the perfect storm that I think explains the cultural devastation that we're seeing in modern relationships. The results are this. The average American adult has 1.8 friends. And 40% of Americans have zero confidants. Now, I don't think this is anything that any of us intentionally choose. No one, uh, no one in this room would choose that. But I think it's just the cultural stream that we're born into for the most part. We don't choose this. This is something that has happened to us because of our other most more heldly, closely held values. We do still have choices, though. We have a choice to stay in this or stay blind to it, or we have a chance or a choice to notice it. We also have the, cha the choice to stay in the cultural stream or to form an alternative society that forges relationships of love. And I think this is the biggest ache of our generation. Who will love me for me? Who will see me for who I truly am and stick around? And there's many different ways that our culture has tried to solve this already. There's what I call quasi-community, which is essentially a special interest group. It's like attracts like. We all love snowboarding or mountain biking or Tarantino movies or something like that. And we're all rallied around a political cause or justice issue. And since we're all the same on that, we form a community that defines itself around that special interest, which can definitely provide respite from the storm of loneliness. And we can form some meaningful bonds, but they are limited by the thing that unites us, football or you know, mountain biking or whatever it is. And if something in my life falls outside of that special interest, then I'm still just as lonely as I was before. There's also what John Mark Comer calls anti-community, or if you like, tribalism. And being a part of a tribe isn't necessarily a bad thing. You might say that becoming a Jesus follower makes you a part of the Jesus tribe. But tribalism is something more than that. Tribalism is uniting with a group based on what you're against or what you're afraid of. And again, we've seen that a ton, particularly in the last few election cycles in America. And there is some relative safety in tribalism. But ultimately, it's, it's deflecting the real thing that we're still craving. Who will love me for me? Who will see me and stick around? 
So if we insist that the, the thing that we're afraid of is actually outside of us, some political enemy or something like that, maybe we can convince ourselves that the problem isn't actually closer to home. See, quasi-communities and anti-communities are everywhere right now. And they're making life tolerable, tolerable in certain cases, but they're not satisfying the ache of our hearts. And I've been pastoring through this entire moment and been watching it all unfold. It's wild times. It's really wild. And I've actually felt lonely uh, at many different points over the last four years. No one's let me down or anything, but I'm just feeling this ache in my heart too. And I am also a product of our culture. So there are moments where I'm really clear, the Spirit of God is guiding me, the Word of God is guiding me, and I see things really clearly, and I'm motivated to lead an alternative society of love in the heart of a storm. And then there have also been many moments over the last four years where I slip back into the same cultural stream of the modern West. I'm not immune to that either. I've often thought to myself, well, if we just like upload a bunch of content online, have one of you build us like a sweet church app or something like that, we have like an online prayer portal where you can share your prayer requests. And then I could just have friends come over. We record a bunch of podcasts. We just don't have to fight that uphill battle of true biblical community. And as I talk with Jesus about this stuff, there's a lot that comes up for me personally. My intuitive response is like this <laughs> prayer and like rally cry of my heart. Like it's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be different in the church. Man, and, and so my prayer goes something like this, like, we need to be a community of agape. Come, Lord Jesus, and breathe fire and breathe fresh wind on your church. Let's go, you know? I've had thousands of prayers like that over the last four years. And in a lot of ways, Riverbend and other churches are quietly but persistently pushing back against individualism and consumerism. And it's beautiful to see, like, true love, real love for real. And I've also just been observing a lot of other things as well. For me personally, even though I teach this stuff and I'm very much uh, in, immersed in the story of the scriptures, I'm still uh, pulled in different directions because I am a product of individualism, right? So just trying to think clearly and think biblically in a world that's trying to tell me that it's actually okay for me to prioritize whatever feels right to me in the moment. Or there have been moments where I've just been trying to ditch the, the secular paradigms of friendship that we get from sitcoms and entertainment culture and really try and think about how Jesus would actually treat the people in my relational sphere. And I think there has been a lot of good that has come from that exploration and that wrestling in my spirit, but I've also been overcompensating. I've been overcompensating. There are some of us here, and um, there, it's not just me, many, many others as well, who just don't want to see those same problems that are playing out in the world, playing out in the church. We want to see our brothers and sisters loved and cherished. And so the way that a personality like mine responds to that is I overcommit. I overcommit. And I've been making, <laughs> I, I love how there's like several of you going, yep, you do. Yep, you do. Thanks, Lisa. I, I got that. I got it. Um, I've been making way too many shallow commitments at the expense of all of my relationships. It actually hurts everyone. It took a three-day visit to a Catholic retreat center for God to get my attention on that one, but um, that's a story for another time. So to recap so far, we're all feeling this ache of the failed experiment that we call radical individualism. And on the whole, we're, a lot of us, still chronically lonely. According to one of the uh, top medical experts in our country, it's a more serious problem than diabetes and heart disease. And the solution to the loneliness pandemic cannot be solved by 15% of Jesus followers overextending themselves in relationships out of a sense of duty. 
So what is the solu- what, what is the solution then? Like, what is the good news? Is there any? Yeah, definitely. Lots of really hopeful, good kingdom of Jesus news for you. Into a world of tribalism and relationships of utility, Jesus invites us to become a brand new community of agape. And that's what we're shooting for. The practice that, we, that comes from the way of Jesus that we call community, um, God is at work in that, where over time, he reorders our a relational life architecture until we become that alternative society of real, true love. And one of the best passages of scripture that I think talks about this practice of community is Romans 12, what uh, Lola just read for us a moment ago. After the Apostle Paul spends 11 chapters articulating all of this really essential doctrine of the gospel of Jesus, it's very awesome theology. I hope one day we get to study together. And then in chapter 12, he takes a sharp right-hand turn after a doxology, and then he says, here's how we respond to the glory of Christ. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And then a few verses down, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It's just an antidote to what, our ache, what we're aching in, in our soul and in our heart. The passage goes on from there, and we're going to be spending the next four weeks exploring that whole passage. But today, here are just some of the high-level basics. Because of Jesus' love for you and his sacrifice on the cross, offer your whole self in service to him and the kingdom of God. So in contrast to the American vision, I am commanded to sacrifice pursuing my personal dreams and seeking first the kingdom of God instead. That is the way the New Testament answers the question of the meaning of life. The more you follow Jesus, the more you're able to spot that cult of self in pop culture and how our entire society is set up to consume. Like when you hear people talk about romantic love in our culture, for example, how do you know that person's the one for you? It's because of how they make me feel about myself. Which makes for some good TV, I suppose. But if we want a community of agape, then you and I have to decouple ourselves from that way of thinking entirely. And we need to take a prophetic stand by offering our whole selves to God. Next, be humble and be willing to associate with people of low position. That comes from verse 16. Does this strike any of you like it strikes me that the first command after offer your bodies as a living sacrifice is, okay, Jesus, yes, you got my attention. What do you want? And after that, he says, do not think of yourself. 
more highly than you ought to think. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. And then he says, don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. So the prerequisite to the new community is humility. The first lesson of the alternative society is honoring one another above yourself. And the further down the path of apprenticing to Jesus you get, the further you get from pride and elitism and all of that stuff, and the closer you get to the heart of Christ who serves and cares for members in the family, which leads to the third kind of high-level basic. You are a member who belongs to the body. We don't understand this, this, this language of belonging in our culture, but we need to. In stark contrast to our culture's vision of autonomy, the vision of the Bible says that we are not independent, we are interdependent. And the metaphor of the body is super helpful because it emphasizes the obvious. My calf is not a whole person. (laughs) My lungs are not a whole person. They are a part of what makes up the whole person. And all of the parts and all of the members are necessary. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, the lung cannot say to the calf, I have no need of you, right? We are all interdependent and we all belong to each other and together we make a whole and together we have life, not as independent calves and lungs and elbows and things like that. And then finally, love must be sincere, not artificial, but from the heart. Now, I hope that you find that super aspirational and beautiful. And if you've been around the church any length of time, none of this is new information for you. These are the things that you'd expect me to say about the practice of community. You, you kind of know the drill. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. At Riverbend, we're not cynical about the Bible or God's commands. We believe they're inspired by God's spirit and they have authority over us. I say that because most of us have known these teachings. Chances are, at one point in your life, you've memorized teachings like these. You've taught these teachings, in my case, for years. And yet, in my experience, the rewards of true biblical community, not always, but often, eludes us. A lot of people in the church today are still chronically lonely to the point where they're disillusioned by scriptures like these, disillusioned by scriptures like these, because they feel like they've tried and they've tried and they've tried and the church has failed them. And that actually might be you here today. In fact, I've heard hundreds of stories over the years from people about neighboring churches that failed to meet this this standard of true friendship and loving devotion. And to be clear, I'm also aware of dozens, if not more people, who used to worship here, but are now worshiping at neighboring churches who say the same thing about me and about us. And those stories, they do sometimes, they make it back to the people that they're said about, which I completely get on, on uh, where people are coming from in both directions. I'm very aware of my shortcomings as a pastor, maybe too aware of my shortcomings as a pastor. And I believe maybe 50 to 60% of the stories that I hear about the neighboring churches. But what I wish I could say to the whole body of Jesus followers in Bend is be careful not to idealize your community. You idealize your community when you fail to notice the people around you are not God. Speaking as an idealistic personality, I can say idealizing community, it creates shame in yourself when you inevitably fall short of the standard you're holding others to. And it also creates resentment in your heart when people fall short. But the lesson that I have been learning is that ultimately blaming others for your loneliness is a cul-de-sac that will never lead you to true community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his masterpiece, Life Together, writes this, every human wish dream 
that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Idealism destroys community. In our basics class, we we talk about the culture of the first generation of Jesus followers from Acts chapter 2. It's this beautiful case study of what could be for the church. But if you could just keep reading a couple more chapters to Acts chapter 5, you'll find things like lying and stealing and racism and profound disagreement and abandonment and dozens of other flaws in the exact same church that we were just idealizing. So we need a realistic vision of community with the requisite of humility and devotion to belonging and honor, not a caricature of what the New Testament church wasn't even able to uphold. I'm human. You are human. We never master community. We practice community. I think, though, that there's another reason why true biblical community is so elusive. In the Western world, um, I think that we, we, need to hear, we need to hear this part because I've seen this happen so many times and I'm actually tempted to do it myself. So please hang with me here. Another reason why true biblical community is so elusive is because in the Western world, we're just folding in the biblical vision into our individualism. We're just attempting to add aspirational values on top of belonging and love and biblical friendship without replacing the ideology that we grew up in. So essentially what I mean by that is we want to retain all of our autonomy. We want to keep pursuing all of our personal dreams and reap the rewards of community. But Jesus never made you that promise because it's not actually possible on those terms. The reward of intimacy only resides in the safety of communal devotion. Let me give you an example. A couple of months ago, uh, my family, my wife and I, for date night, went to Boss Taurus, which is that really super high-end steakhouse here in town. A friend of ours gave us an amazingly generous gift card, and so we went, we went for it. And we got the Wagyu steak, which was like $40 an ounce, which is insane. And it was in, indescribably good. It was incredible. And uh, we had some leftovers, so we brought it home with us. And then the next morning, I was making a fresh smoothie. I make bomb smoothies uh, for me and my kids. And so this smoothie had had banana and Greek yogurt and some mango, little orange juice. I sneaked some greens in there because, yeah, that's what you do when you're dad. Um, and then I was about to, like, finish it off with some fresh strawberries. And uh, so as I was going to add the strawberries, I realized that I had accidentally grabbed the steak from the night before. And I had almost just like, I caught myself right before I threw it into the blender. So I almost ruined a perfectly good smoothie and some divine steak from the night before by trying to mix them together. And you'd never do that intentionally, right? Because they're not the same favor profile and they just don't go together, obviously. And I'm convinced, I think this is why a lot of non-Jesus followers are happier than a lot of Jesus followers in Western culture because consumerism by itself is a lot easier than a bad mixture of consumerism with some parts of the way of Jesus. I didn't say it was better or good. I said it was easier. So what does the Lord want to do? The Lord wants to progressively replace our individualism with the new paradigm of belonging in the body of Christ not just copy and paste his vision on top of our existing paradigms. And some of us are so immersed in the cultural stream that we can't even notice that this is happening. But in case you're wondering, yes, 
you have been culturally conditioned to be an individualist. Just ask any first-generation Latino immigrant. Like, the, the, the Pacific Northwest is the mecca of the cult of self. It is. You're like, didn't you say this was the good news part? It is the good news part. Trust me. That's what we're getting to here. Jesus' call to true biblical community is not a huge uphill climb that you and I have to somehow muster the strength to ascend. It's not actually a call for you to do more at all. It's actually a call for you to do less. Let me explain. In contrast to quasi-community, anti-community, or idealized community, the practice of true community, not the theory, but the practice of true community is Jesus' way of detoxifying our hearts of individualism and cultivating relationships of, of agape over a lifetime. So community is not a mystery. It, it's real. It's attainable. It's as simple as trusting Jesus' words are true and patterning your life after his example. What I mean by that is Jesus showed us exactly what he's expecting us to do. When you study the gospel narratives, you'll find that the new community that Jesus formed, number one, honored his limits as a human, and number two, showed grace for the humanity of everyone in it. Sociologist Edward Hall developed the theory of proxemics in the 1960s, where he argues that our relational life can be broken up into four relational spheres, the public, the social, the personal, and the intimate. And it's become a whole thing today, uh, but simply put, the public is the group of people that we come into contact with on a daily basis. So like think the people at the coffee shop that you frequent, your barista or the guy who held the door for you or something like that. And these people give you a sense of social connection because they speak your language and dress like you dress and operate on some of the same basic life pr principles. Principles like Ben sucks, don't move here, right? Or the mountains are awesome, it's time to start praying for snow, right? These are the things that our society is kind of built on some of these uh, life principles. So the average person can maintain about 70 or maybe a little bit more of these casual social connections. The social is the group of people who are in your tribe. These are like the 25 to 50 people who are more connected and more integral parts of your everyday life. They're your coworkers or your neighbors, your church, the people you see at the 9 a.m. gathering or Alpha or the Fall Fest. And you share more in common than just a language or dress code. You hold a lot of the same virtues. We care for the poor. We hold the scriptures as sacred. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And then we rally for each other when we all have have needs. The personal is a group of people who are like your close-knit family sphere. You know their stories. They share inside jokes with you. You're deeply connected in, in, in their life, and they're connected in yours. They carry your burdens. You carry theirs. Uh, you know, and they know your strengths and weaknesses, and you talk about those strengths and weaknesses, but there's no threat of them actually detaching from you despite the fact that they know what your shadow side is. This is a really valuable sphere of relationships. And most of us can be close to eight or at most 12 people like this. And then there's the intimate. The intimate. This is the closest people in your life. Your spouse or your best friend. Maybe a sibling or a parent. These are people who are completely safe. You are your completely true self with them. And, they, and you have cultivated intimacy with them. They know virtually everything about you. They maybe even know you better than you know yourself. And you share an intimacy that cannot be replicated across other relationships because you just don't have that shared experience with them. You cannot rec recreate that with dozens of people. And at most, you can have two to four people uh, like this in your life. 
Now, the way that we do relationships in our cultural stream tends to create lots and lots of public and social relationships, but basically no personal or intimate relationships. Historically, we have made, we have made way too many loose connections at the expense of cultivating a, uh, a few deep, committed relationships of agape. So here's why I bring up proxemics, because it should sound really familiar to you, because this is exactly how Jesus ordered his relational life. Jesus had a ministry to the masses, the multitude. He had a group of disciples that he deeply influenced, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But he appointed just 12, 12 apostles who were with him 24-7. And within that group, he had his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And I want you to think about this. The, the love of God spread to the entire world because Jesus honored his limits as a human and devoted himself to a small community. So if Jesus had overcommitted to the masses, he couldn't have cultivated intimacy with Peter. And the intimacy that he cultivated with Peter was actually the thing that set the trajectory for the church. So the call is simple. We, we need to follow Jesus' example, and we need to have healthy relationships in all four levels, not just uh, the outside uh, couple rooms. So I see, um, if we were to reframe this in language that's more uh, nuanced for us, I, I would look at it like this. We have four levels of relationship. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have community, and we have companions. Notice I'm not saying that it's okay to have selfish boundaries. There's lots of pop psychology around that today. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we need to honor our limits. If Jesus can't have 150 intimate friends, then neither can we. And so our responsibility is to um, make a commitment to these groups of people at different levels based on their, their proximity. So I would argue that we are to be kind to all people. If you uh, follow the work of um, Count Zinzendorf from the 17th century, he formed an order called the Order of the Mustard Seed, and that was the first vow that they took together, was to be kind to all people. So love our neighbors. Be present to the person who's pumping your gas. Don't just scroll through your phone or whatever. Notice the people who are making your coffee. Practice kindness and presence to them. Some of us are really good at that. Invest in your friends. By investing in your friends, we're talking about being willing to sacrifice, prefer their needs above your own, share your gifts with them, be relationally uh, uh, available and connected to them. And then when it comes to your community, devote yourself to them. Prioritize and guard your time with them. Honor them. Be committed to belong with them. Notice that your relationship with them is different. You belong to them. They belong to you. It involves being vulnerable and transparent. It involves cherishing each other and the like. And then cultivate intimacy with your companions. The Psalms say there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. These kinds of companionship relationships are a rare gift that we can have and we should as we practice community. And it involves being completely transparent and vulnerable and your true self to them. And you can't expect the two minutes on a Sunday morning after three Sundays to give you that kind of relationship. It requires devotion. We invite you into that, but it requires your commitment. Now the point here is not for us to like control you or your you know, relational life. Obviously that would be foolish. We need the Spirit of God. We need wise counsel to apply these things to our lives. Your best friend may still live in the Bay Area or something. 
or you may have an extremely tight-knit nuclear family. And we certainly don't want you to unlovingly detach yourself from non-believers or people, friends you have outside of this church. And we're definitely not trying to reduce your relationships down to some sort of a simple system. That's not what this is. But what this is, is um, we want to take the pressure off. And we want to pay attention to our limits. And then we want to allow Jesus to progressively replace our individualism with his vision for humility and belonging through the practice, not the theory, the practice of community. And there's so much more that needs to be said about this. The new community requires a shared vision of Jesus, clear expectations, and many more things that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. But to end today, I think it's important that we end uh, with a public confession and then also an invitation to practice. So this is my, my, my public confession that I was really trying to get out of this week, but the Lord said, nope, you're doing it. So here we go. When I overcommit, which I often do, I'm doing it, I think, out of a good-hearted attempt to defeat individualism and to solve loneliness in our medium-sized church. But when I do that, I'm, I'm forcing intimacy that, that I cannot sustain. And in the end, it just hurts people's feelings. It burns people out. And what we end up with is like a culture of kindness, which we need, but not a culture of depth and vulnerability and formation. And so as I have been reflecting on this over the last couple of years, quite frankly, trying to figure out how do we frame up and talk about community and live into the practice of community in the coming years, I have realized that I have not been walking in wisdom and leading in wisdom in this area of our church. And I, I haven't been living within my limits, and I know that that has hurt people. The people that it's hurt the most are the people in the smaller side of that triangle, my community, my family, and I am deeply sorry for leading in that way. Uh, you deserve better from your spiritual leaders, and uh, my family deserves better than what I've been giving them. See, we want to become an alternative society, and that means we need a culture shift, and the culture shift that we need involves all of us here. It's not just 15% of Jesus' followers overdoing it out of a sense of duty. It involves everyone participating, and this teaching series is the very beginning of that culture shift, and we've got a long ways to go, but this is just the beginning. And for me, what that means is I need to commit to doing less, committing to trust God with my relational limits, and I'm sure that there's others of you here in the room who probably need to do the same. And as I've been kind of getting to know, I've read a lot of books, I've done a lot of research on the scriptures, but a lot of you have been teaching me what this actually looks like. Our new elders, Don and Dolores, have been just a, a, a godsend to me. They came to faith and fell in love with Jesus and each other at a commune in the 1970s where they found Jesus. And it's like, oh my gosh, can we all just follow your lead? Because you seem to intuitively know all the things that our culture is so still trying to figure out. But then there are others of you where the call is to acknowledge, just notice that the cultural stream that you are growing up in or have grown up in is in direct conflict with the teachings of Jesus and will never bring you the sense of belonging and meaning that you crave unless you invite God to replace that. And you may be consuming a lot without contributing a lot. And as we practice community together, it's an act of faith that the Lord is going to replace your individualism with his vision. So in other words, 
what we're not saying is try to make all of your relationships intimate. Try and have a hundred intimate relations. That's just a fool's errand. You can't do it. But just also don't just amass crazy amounts of loose connections thinking that it will bring you intimacy because it won't. What we need is to cultivate healthy relationships in all four levels. And this is a grace-filled practice. This is something that the Lord wants to help us grow in, and I have a lot to grow in this area as well. And so for this week, all we want to do is have a very simple, reflective practice where we complete a little relational audit. So um, the, we're going to put the audit, audit up on the screen behind me. Um, and this is just something for you to take a photo of if you can. And, um, and just sometime in the next few days, perform this relational audit. And here's, here's how it goes. What are some ways that you can create more margin in your life to cultivate intimate companion-style relationships? And what aspects of your autonomy will you have to surrender to create that margin? And then are you willing to commit to surrender your autonomy? Are you overcommitting to certain things at the expense of your relationships? If so, what can you do this week to adjust those commitments in a loving way? Are you coping with loneliness by using escapist behaviors like app scrolling and entertainment binging? Do you have any true companions who knows the real you? And if so, how can you attend to those relationships this week? If you don't have any true companions, then ask for God's help. Thank him for his presence in your life, and then ask him to direct your steps towards deeper friendship this week. So I understand that this is just a lot, really mostly today. I'm just a long preamble to trying to understand how, inter, how individualism and consumerism interacts with the biblical worldview and what I think the solution is, which is not to copy and paste Jesus' vision on top of what we already have going on in all of our existing paradigms, but to actually invite him to progressively replace all of those things. I hope that you leave here with a genuine sense of like my humility that I have not led awesome at this, particularly in the last four years, because we have been experiencing all kinds of this same cultural upheaval that's happening in your relational sphere has also been happening here. And we've been trying to respond with wisdom and love, and I think we've done a good job keeping Jesus the main thing, but there have been a lot of things that I have not gotten right. And part of the solution is for all of us to say, no, we're not gonna just leave it up to the 15% who always did the right thing out of duty. We're actually all going to participate and we're all gonna become active members by cultivating these relationships of agape over time. And it's all coming from a sense of trusting in Jesus's vision that our meaning to life is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to Jesus and his kingdom. Are you guys with me on that? All right, let's stand and let's pray. Thanks. I, I, I actually heard a, an, an applause there for a moment, and that just made my heart really happy. Um, yeah, thanks. So um, just hold your hands open with me and take in a deep breath. Jesus, we just see it clearly now. We see clearly the love, the real agape that you have for us. We see that for what it is. It's unique. It's something that the world does not give us. And particularly in our stream that we live in, we, we recognize that this is actually really foreign to how our culture does relationships. 
And it's the egg of our heart. We, we want belonging here. We want to be truly loved and we want to love. We want to belong to one another. We want to be members of a broader family. And so in the name of Jesus, we just pray that you would come to us, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us love. And as we perform this relational audit in the next couple of days, God, I pray that you'd be gracious to us and kind to us and gentle with us. But I do ask that you would expose the areas of our heart where we need to confess sin and come to you and repent and turn around. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that this exercise would bring us all closer to you and closer to one another. I want to be a part of that alternative society that you have formed, Jesus. And I pray that you would enable us by your spirit to do that. And church, I just want to remind you, one of the beautiful symbols of our unity is how we sing on Sundays. Uh, Some of us sing way better than others. Uh, Michael's got a great voice. I try and sing at the floor because my voice doesn't sound awesome. But we all join in together in the anthem of heaven. And we're anchoring our heart and we're anchoring ourselves in the truth of the words that we're singing, which is Jesus is alive and we have new life in him. So I encourage you to join the choir as we sing and give praise to the Lord Jesus. And also we're coming to the tables of communion uh, during this song too. So as, um, as the team leads us, come forward to receive the bread and cup and then go back to your seat. We'll take it together as one church, as a unified family.